0: New location this morning as we are in the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 18. Uh, Where we have been from chapters 13 through 17 is the upper room and then on through the city and as Jesus prays in John 17, wrapping up, first of all, when he comes into the city. Now, I want to back up to just four or five days before on Sunday. This is Thursday night. We would call it Thursday night. It's sort of Friday on their calendar, but... Um, as we back up, when they came into the city on Sunday, just a few days ago, There was so much hoopla. If you remember when we looked at the triumphal entry, that's what we call it. uh, They were celebrating Jesus as Messiah, and he was presenting himself to Israel, and it looked good. It was powerful. The people were just going crazy. Crowd coming out of the city, crowd coming down, to the Mount of Olives converging there, and the the religious leaders being incensed and saying, rebuke your disciples. And he said, if these become quiet, the stones will cry out, you're not going to stop this. And his disciples, his men, his twelve, eleven of them anyway, being very excited. They had been part of his circle for three and a half years. And now they come into the city and they're, they're, they're sort of looking at this hero's welcome. And then they go through the week, and Jesus is squaring off against the religious leaders every day in the temple precincts and then over on the Mount of Olives. And, and, and that as he goes along, that they see that this hostility with the religious leaders is growing and growing. And they are, now they have hatched a plot to kill him. As you remember that Judas, in the middle of the Last Supper, when Jesus dipped his hand in the sop, talking about the one who would betray him and then Judas slips out into the night and goes to uh get with the religious leaders to betray Jesus and so Jesus now has been wrapping up this last 5 hours with his men where he has sort of burst their bubble in a major way and in a series of ways uh, they they had been arguing about who would be the greatest and 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 Jesus tells um, James and John, it said, can you drink the cup? And they're going, yeah, well, we, yeah, we could. And he knows that they don't get it. They're not connecting everything. And they don't see the cross coming. He does. And, and, and then with Peter and his boldness saying, I would never, I wouldn't be like these guys. And he puts himself above the rest and causes a lot of enmity between them as that goes. And uh, and, and Jesus basically lets him know, no, no Peter, that's not going to be the case. You will end up running away before this night is over and before the cock crows. And so this night with his men had stripped their gears. It, it, they had come in thinking that they were victorious, thinking that they were going to be with Messiah when Messiah set up his kingdom and threw off the yoke of Rome and actually began to rule from Jerusalem. And he had basically undone all of that, and he had floored them. They were they were kind of they were wrung out, and they were grieved, not just because they wouldn't have the position, but because he's saying, "I'm going away. I'm leaving, and but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'll send the helper, the Holy Spirit." And we looked at that, and so now as they are coming through the city, uh, and into this garden called Gethsemane. Uh, there are some remarkable things that are going to go on. I want to take a few minutes beforehand. As, as you see, the agony of love, that's really what we're going to talk about today, but we really need to lay some groundwork. And, and one of the things I like to do, because we have the ability to, to, to do visuals, is I like to geog- geographically locate us. It helps to add a layer of reality to these things because they are indeed real and they did indeed happen. And so as we look at the geography here for a minute, go to the uh, slide one, please. Uh, I want to look at Jerusalem and and where we've been in the upper room. If you'll see down in the lower right, there's a red dot. And uh, if you I don't know if it's clear enough, but just to the left of that red dot, you see a domed roof. Uh, That's called the Domitian Abbey. Remember when we looked at the upper room, we looked at that place, and and it's easy to locate in the city because of that domed roof. And then off in the distance there, you see the Temple Mount, where the the temple proper was inside of that, sort of to the left of center in the Temple Mount. And then beyond that is the Kidron Valley and then Gethsemane. And so Jesus would have been traveling through the city, it, this is a modern-day photo. It would have been far less developed, wouldn't have skyscrapers off in the distance, but it would have been far less developed, but it still would have been the same terrain. Uh, he's been on the Mount of Mount Zion, which is the highest mountain around Jerusalem, and then looking off in the distance on the other side of Gethsemane is the Mount of Olives, where he had come down just on Sunday when he came into the city, as I was mentioning a few minutes ago, and he came into the city so now, for them to get to the garden, they would have to walk through the city. Uh, next slide, please. And this is just a—it's an example. I'm not saying this is the route they took. Nobody knows. They may not have taken this route, but it makes the most sense because, for one thing, if you look to the right of the Temple Mount, right at the edge of the frame there, it's a big hill. Uh, it gets very rough in there. The terrain, the Kidron Valley is a fairly deep ravine. You'll see that in a few minutes. But what happened was that if you tried to go around that side of the temple, you would have to go south to the to the uh, uh, Valley of Gehenna, which was also the Valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament, and then go and catch the Kidron Ravine and then go up. Now, one of the things that's true about this time of year, it's Passover. They had been doing the Passover lamb and all of that, and there were upwards of, 250,000 lambs that would be slaughtered, and the Kidron Ravine was used as sort of as, uh, it, it was where, it, it was the low spot, and it carried off the blood, it carried off the refuse from the temple, and so, if these guys went south, they would have to hike up along this uh, pretty rough ravine, and, and get the ground was far more level going around the north side of the temple. Now, they couldn't go through the temple because the temple was closed at night, Remember at sunset, everybody out, they had three gates going out, one gate going in because people would meander in all day, but the big gate going out. And so the temple would be closed, and they probably went around the northern part, the northern flank of the Temple Mount. Why do I say all of this? Because I want you to understand that this is where they walked. as as His men took that final walk with their master. As they went through the night, uh, it's a significant walk because they had been getting all of these instructions. And now he's, he has said at the end of chapter 14, come, let us go from here, either up on the roof or through the city. We don't know. But we know that where they ended up was at Gethsemane. So um, probably went through. There's, there's a gate to the city uh, just to the north of the Temple Mount called the King's Gate. That's probably where they exited. It's just north of the Golden Gate, the East Gate. So uh, next slide, this is a satellite view of the same thing. You can see the Temple Mount, the Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives, and Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane, that's where it is today. It may have been slightly different back then, but I don't think so. I think it's pretty well locked in. I mean, uh, that's been traditionally the site for as long as anyone can look back. Uh, There is a big Catholic church there called the Church of All Nations, uh, and we'll look at that in a moment, but uh it's just to the south. So there's this garden, and it's it's essentially an olive orchard. Uh it, that's what it is. It, with the you know, if you've seen olives, they have kind of dark silvery green leaves and and uh very distinct as trees go. Uh so that's the proximity of the Garden of Gethsemane to the Temple Mount. And again, looking at the Kidron Valley, you'll see how deep it is in a moment. It was drainage. And and in those days, they didn't have sewers and septic deals and all that. They had drainage. And so part of why the temple was built where it was is because there was good drainage just off to the side of it. Now, coming on down here, if you look, at there I have a red arrow on the next slide. That's If you see that the, the right side of that arrow is where the church is, the Church of All Nations. And then the left side of the arrow is actually pointing right at the golden gate, the east gate to the city. And that's the gate that Messiah will come through. So uh, I want you to, to take it now. Next slide, please. All right, this is the Church of All Nations. And uh, it's an interesting place. It's If you look, if you see the trees just to the left of the church, that is the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what it looks like present day. It's almost at the bottom of the Kidron. It's at the very bottom of the Mount of Olives. It's still the Mount of Olives. That's what's towering up behind it. But it's at the bottom, and it's a fascinating place. Now, looking from this Church of All Nations, I have a vacation photo in here, and it's not because I want to show you pictures of me and Stacey. It's because I want to show you what's behind us. I couldn't find a better photo. At any rate, if you look, we were standing in the archway of the Church of All Nations, and somebody took our photograph, and I've outlined a black line on the East Gate. Where Messiah will return when He comes to set up His kingdom. That's where, and, and the Arabs thought, well, you know, we're not going to let that happen, so we'll we'll just block it, and they blocked it with a cemetery in front, and they literally blocked up the entrance. And I kind of think that won't stop Jesus when He's about to do what He's going to do. So, um, at any rate, I, I show that not to look at our cute faces, which are several years younger, by the way. Um, but so that you get an idea. If you see how it drops off there, and there's actually a highway way down. It's a deep ravine, and it was deeper in Jesus' day. Uh, It's thought to have been anyway. So now looking into the garden, next slide, yeah. The trees there, the current trees, are about 900 years old. Uh, Very ancient trees. Still produce fruit. Well, olives. Uh, And and. So these are not the trees that were there in Jesus' day, but it's fairly easy to assume that there were ancient trees there then because this garden goes way back. It was probably private property when Jesus used it. Uh, It wasn't a public place, but he met there all the time with his guys. I've mentioned before, you know, they didn't have cell phones like, hey, meet me over on the corner of blah, blah, blah. So they had prearranged a place. If you're trying to find Jesus, you could find him at the garden. So, Judas, when Judas betrayed him, Judas left the upper room. There was no indication that Jesus was going to go down to the garden. So, Judas likely, again, we don't know, but likely showed up at the upper room with the Roman soldiers and, and the high priests and all. And finding the room empty, he knew where he would find Jesus. If he's not there, he'll be at the garden. So, just kind of linking these things together. Next slide beautiful ancient trees. Yeah, great stuff. One more. And look at the trunks on those. They're amazing. When Stacy and I walked, we had the privilege of walking through there right before that photo was taken. Uh, and it was just uh, humbling, I guess, to think, you know, this is this is where the Lord spent his last few minutes with his men and where he was when he was arrested, which is what we're going to look at this morning. John chapter 18. Verse 1, when Jesus has spoken these words, what words? The great high priestly prayer, John 17. Uh, We've looked at that for three weeks and and looked at that uh, briefly. I I just, you know, I I really prayed over whether I should go back and just go through and summarize the whole chapter 17 or move forward. And and I just sensed that I needed to move forward. But uh, I would just encourage more study. Of that prayer of Jesus, the greatest prayer in all of God's word. Uh, so when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over to the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. I want to read something. I found a book uh, that I have added to my library because it was just uh, I, I I just got to a point reading this book yesterday. It's called The Life of Christ. It's about 130 years old uh, by a, a British theologian named Frederick Farrar. Uh, I'd never heard of this book before, but it, it's, it, he so beautifully blends the gospel accounts, uh, which is what we're going to do this morning, and not based on his text because it was hard to parse in that way, but just very beautifully written. And, and, and One of the things he wrote is this. He said, Their way had led them through one of the city gates, probably the lion's gate abutting the Kidron Valley to the north of the temple, down the steep sides of the ravine, across the brook of the Kidron, which lay a hundred feet below, and up the the green and quiet slope beyond it. To one who has visited this scene at that very season of the year and at that cold hour of the night, who has felt the solemn hush of the silence, even at the short distance from the city wall who has seen the deep shadows flung by the great trunks of the ancient olive trees and the checkering of light that falls on the early spring grasses through their moonlight silvered leaves. It is more easy to realize the awe which crept over those few Galileans in an almost unbroken silence with something perhaps of secrecy and with the weight of mysterious dread brooding over their spirits. They followed him. Who, with bowed head and souring heart, walked before them to his willing doom. Isn't that good? I just—I I read that, and I—I I ended up. I pushed my my chair back from my desk and just began to pray as I, I read that, and just just imagining what that night would have been like for his men, the things that Jesus had unveiled to them in the upper room, and and then hearing him pray and and all of the things that praying specifically for them and then for the people through their word who would be touched and reached for the gospel, including you and I. And they're, now they're walking solemnly in this last walk, this last few moments that they would have with their master as they cross the Kidron and enter the garden. One of the things I want to do, <coughs> excuse me, I'm glad I have water. Uh, thank you, Jennifer. One of the things I want to do is blend the gospel accounts. Hey, we got to verse 1, so, you know, that's good. Um, We're going to start in Mark, and I'm going to blend these in sort of a sequential order, Mark and then Luke and then Matthew last, uh, and look at between verse 1 and verse 2 in John 18 is where all of this happens. And I would be remiss to not bring it out at least some uh, for us to understand the flow and the importance and, and the, the just the solemn grief that Jesus experiences here in this garden. Not because he's going to die. He would give up his life the next day on the cross. He knew when to check out. And, and I don't mean to say that lightly, but he would give up his life. He had control over his life. But the grief that he experiences here, the, the inner struggle that he experiences here, and the, the falling on his knees and pleading with the Father is the result of knowing that he was going to take the cup, the cup of God's wrath. That he was going to suffer the full impact of the wrath of God for the sins of humanity. That's what he was struggling against. That's what he was struggling. He knew that he was going to take the cup. His will was never out of line with the Father's will. But that's where the the powerful aspect of this passage comes. And I want you to hang on to that as we go through it. It's not because he's afraid to die. It's because he is going to be alone for the very first time in his entire life as the Father turns his back on him, places our sins on him, and pours out his wrath toward him on the cross. And he knew that was coming. He knew, and it was sobering, a reality to him that he did not want to do, but he had to do. He's human and God, fully human, fully God. And in his humanity, we're going to see that this was not a small thing for him. He didn't go, well, I'm God. I can just do it and be done and move on. He went through all of the same agony that you and I would with a significant loss, but infinitely more, infinitely more. We can just touch on the feelings that he had, because we're not going to wear the sins of the world. Praise God, because he did, going in our place. And yet a very significant thing, and series of things is going on in the garden here. I'm going to start in Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Then they came to a place which is named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So there's 11 guys. Remember, Judas is gone. And he says, sit here while I pray. I want to bring something out, another couple of slides here. Gethsemane means olive press. Okay? And this is a a picture here of an olive press. Uh, Next slide. This is one that is from ancient Israel. It's an olive press that the way that they did this, the way they, and olive oil was a commodity to these people. Uh, Again, just kind of tagging the facts and figures of this thing as we get into the text. And it was what the way they did it. You can see the bags around on the first slide. If you back up one, there are bags around, and so that's what they harvested the olives from uh, out in the orchard. And they would come and they would dump the olives into this olive press, and they would hitch an animal to the end of a long pole. That as the animal walked in a circle around the press, the huge stone would grind and crush the olives. And the oil would flow out, and there would be a little reservoir, a little outlet for it to go into a a vessel to contain the oil. And so as this animal turned around, the whole principle there was to crush the olives. And I just think it's interesting. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, we're told that he was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 33, and he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. So again, when he, it says he's troubled and deeply distressed, it's not because of the horror of the physical torture, which he would endure. I mean, there would be no small amount of it in the hours to come. And, and we'll look at that as we get into the crucifixion. But the spiritual horror of the cross, of being made sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that he became sin that we could become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And so I didn't name this study the agony of love just because it's a cool sounding name. This is the agony of love in action being crushed for us. Hebrews uh, 5, 7, and 8 describes Jesus' agony at Gethsemane. Uh, says Jesus in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death as was, and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus didn't learn obedience because he was disobedient. He learned obedience because he didn't want to do it. As a man, he didn't want to do what it was set before him to do. And yet he knew that his will had to be aligned with the Father's. And, and he says here, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But he knew there was no other way, and so his will was aligned with the Father's. Uh, Harry Ironside, one of my favorite commentators, says this. "This is his holy soul shrank from the awfulness of being made sin upon the tree. It was not death, but the divine anger against sin, the imputation to him of all our iniquities that filled his soul with horror. There was no conflict of wills. Isn't that good? Now, further blending the Gospels, we're going to switch from Mark to the Gospel according to Luke, and we're going to look at verse twenty, chapter 22, uh, verse 41. It says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed so What's happening here is that Jesus comes into the garden with his 11 men and after he comes down across the the Kidron into the garden and he has his men, he parks them there, but then he brings three of them, Peter, James, and John, with him and then he tells them to watch and pray. And then he goes about a stone's throw away, a short distance away is what's indicated there, and he kneels down to pray. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me about this is the usual manner of prayer in the first century in, in the Jewish culture was that the person who was praying would be standing. And they would stand to pray. Remember, a, a, a rabbi would sit to teach, but if he went to pray, he would stand up. And the fact that Jesus goes into the garden and he falls down on his knees, prostrate, 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 (laughs) I always get that mixed up, Uh, before God, that it shows, it proves the violence of his struggle here, that he is desperately seeking the Father at this point, and he is in a place where his soul is very, very troubled. Verse 42, uh, as he prays, he's saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew what the Father's will was, and yet was in great agony of soul. His soul was in agony. The agony didn't come from any lack of a desire to do the will of God, but because Jesus would go to the cross as a sacrifice for sins. He's not a victim of circumstances beyond his control. Understand that as we go through this, and we'll see that next week as we look at the arrest of Jesus when when the soldiers come, and they come heavily armed and with way more soldiers than they needed, that he volunteers to be arrested. So he's not a victim of circumstances, and he's not like any of the animal sacrifices that had gone before him. And remember, the whole Levitical sacrificial system was designed to atone for sin, but it gave a limited covering for sin. It never eliminated sin, which is what Jesus would accomplish at the cross. And so, he's not like an unknowing animal sacrifice. That animal never knew that he was about to be sacrificed. That was just what happened. But he willingly resolved to lay down his life. And when we look at the cup, when he, we, as I mentioned, the cup of God's wrath. I want to look at some Old Testament uh passages here. I've got three of them. There there are more. But repeatedly in the Old Old Testament, the cup is a powerful picture of the wrath and the judgment of God, which Jesus knows he's about to wear. Psalm 75 verse 8 says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, and it is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Finally, in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15, we read this. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. We see clearly in this that when Jesus talks about let this cup pass from me, it's the cup of God's wrath. It's not talking about his death. It's talking about the wrath to come upon him. Why would he do it? Because he loves us. He loves you. He loves me. And he could look down as we looked in chapter 17. He he looks down through the ages and he sees our utter hopelessness in doing anything to resolve the chasm between us and a holy God. And so as he has now finished his ministry, as he has now completed the work, There's nothing left on earth for him to do except to go to the cross, which would be the most significant thing that he did. And yet he had lived a life in perfect harmony with the Father's will, in perfect communion with the Father, and in perfect fellowship with him, unbroken. And now coming to this, uh, to know that that he, the perfect man, would suffer all of the consequences for imperfect humanity. The second uh, half of chapter 22 in Luke, verse 42, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Think about it. There are two gardens prominent in the Bible. In the first, a sinless man battled sin, Satan, self, and temptation in a garden and lost, saying, my will will not yours be done. And the loss horrifically impacted all of mankind. The second sinless man battled Satan, sin, self, and temptation in another garden and won, saying, not my will, but yours be done. The book of Romans describes Jesus as the second Adam. Through one man's sin entered the world. I'm not responsible for Adam's sin, but I inherit his nature. So do you. And, and that, that's what sets up the, 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 the impossibility of us being able to do anything to atone for our own sin. It's our nature. We act out of that nature. We behave out of that nature. Sin is a nature and it manifests in deeds. How often I'm grieved because, and and sometimes rightfully so, because sin is sin and it's wrong. And how often I'm grieved, though, that someone will point their finger at someone else who is behaving out of their nature and and expect something else. We can't. You have to understand it's a nature that manifests in deeds. shared before, shared again, uh, uh, stealing a horse is not what makes a man a horse thief. So what is it that makes him a horse thief? The minute that the thought is conceived in his mind, in his heart, that he's going to steal that horse, he is now a horse thief. He has to be a horse thief before he can ever lay hands on the horse. That's our condition. That's our nature. And he came to give us a new nature. He came to give us life. Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you were dead, not kind of dead, but spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins, but he saved us by grace, through faith. We have nothing to boast in. It's about what Jesus is about to do here. It's about what happens after they come and take him out of this garden. And he goes through, and we'll look at it, six mock trials, three by Rome and three by the Jews. And then one ending it up with a referendum from the people ending with crucify him for us. This truth, don't let it become an old, dusty religious truth in your life. Brothers and sisters, I implore you, live in the reality of the cross and all that it means. Walk in the power of the resurrection. We'll get to that. Awesome. And yet he had to do this in order to accomplish that. He had to go and to atone for sins in order to go into that grave, to be, have his sacrifice be acceptable to the Father, that death couldn't hold him, that he would resurrect and offer power to us, to offer everlasting life to any who would believe. And I'm not talking about anyone who would say, well, I have faith. And it's just like I've mentioned before, you know, I was a 16-year-old in high school and, and I went to summer camp and I made a profession of faith. That's not enough. Yes, that's important if that's how you came to the Lord. But it's not about an event. It's about a life. It's about a life that's lived, that's set apart. And that's what he has been saying to his men this whole time. Live set apart. We looked at it last week. When we looked at the world. Don't live in the world. Or don't, don't be of the world. Be, be in it, but not of it. Because then our light can so shine before men that we glorify our Father in heaven. And we can be his ambassadors. We can be the ones that are used to touch other people's lives. Because it's a messed up, screwed up, hurting, painful world out there. All of that through this, the agony of love. Verse 43, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, and strengthening him. Interesting, the father didn't remove the cup from Jesus, but in answer to his prayer, he sent an angelic messenger to strengthen him, uh, to, to be able to do it, to complete it. He was struggling, folks. He was, he was in despair. He was, he was actually in a place that, again, we can't understand it, but he can identify with us when we're grieving. He can identify with us when we're in pain. He can identify us when we're going through things because he knows what it is as a man to endure extreme trial. And that's what he's going through. And being in agony, verse 44, in agony, he prayed more earnestly, then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. We looked at that before, hematidrosis, which is, is actually a medical condition. It's extremely rare to where the capillaries in your face under extreme stress burst, and you can actually sweat blood. Uh, I'm not going to cover that again. We covered it back when we looked at it initially. But uh, again, extreme stress. By the way, being stressed is not sin. It doesn't mean you're not trusting God. It means life hits us sometimes and we get stressed. The Lord allows circumstances often into our lives that stress us. As part of how he works his will in our lives. It's not that he's laughing at us or thinks that it's not a big deal because it is to us. But I mean, our great hero here is stressed to the point of sweating blood. And he's not sinning. He's struggling. He's, he's in a struggle. Yes, that's true. But the Bible tells us that he was tempted in all ways as we are, and yet without sin. He's not sinning here. Verse 45, and when he rose up from prayer he, and he had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Now, in Luke's gospel, Luke inserts from sorrow here, which is interesting. I, I went through the full account in all four gospels as I was preparing for this message and, and have just tried to carry through with the things that were unique about each one as we follow the narrative on out in blending the gospels. And, and I think it's as significant that Luke puts this. As I mentioned, they showed up at the upper room to celebrate Passover with Jesus, thinking, yeah, right on, things are going great. Arguing with each other constantly in those last few days about uh, who was going to have the the best office or whatever. I mean, they they showed up with one outlook on what the life and the ministry of Jesus was going to be, and he had just finished landing the bomb on their lives this last five hours, and they're grieved. Not because of they're not having but they're going to lose it. They're, he's told them repeatedly, I'm going away. And he has implored them to pray this whole time. How many times have we looked? If you've been with us, we've looked in the Gospel of John where he says, pray. And whatever you ask in the Father's name, I'll do it. I'll give you that. And as long as you continue to be centered in what that means, my character, my purposes, my nature, as long as your prayers are consistent with that, I will do it. He's trying to get them accustomed to seeking him because he won't be there in person. And so here in these last minutes, these last few minutes before the soldiers arrive, he's imploring them to pray once again to seek the Father because he knows that he's not going to be able to be available to them after this personally, physically. He knows that for us that the the key... For us to be able to have any effectiveness in the kingdom of God whatsoever, to have any effectiveness in our lives as Christians, as believers, that it has to be based and bathed and centered in prayer. Because we have full access to the Father. And he has granted us access through the work of the cross to be able to boldly approach the throne of grace. How often do we not do that? I'm not trying to guilt anybody, but... I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like my prayers get hindered and I have to just simply wait and say, Lord, just let me settle my heart. I don't pray that on accident. I had a busy morning, things going wrong and ran up to my house to get some equipment for the sound guys and all this stuff, and I'm just saying, Lord, if if you don't do this, it's not going to get done. If you don't speak to people's hearts, nothing's going to happen. If you don't continue that conforming work of conforming, conforming us to the image of your Son, then it won't come about. and so lord i beg you do the work in the hearts and lives of your people do the work in me. i need i don't just want you lord i need you. i need you with every breath. as i mentioned just being sort of overcome in my office yesterday as i was preparing for this i just pushed back from my desk and just began to pray and just seek the lord and just lord i just I can't express the depth of love I have for you because of all that you've done for me. All that you've done for your people. It's a good place to be. And here, now in the garden, he's with his men. He's implored them to pray. And what do they do? They fall asleep. It says they fell asleep from sorrow. They were grieved. They were emotionally wrung out. And they didn't see the cross coming. They didn't understand the importance of this last few minutes to watch and pray. And so... Jesus comes to them. And they're they're filled with sorrow. You now they're they're. You got to remember too, as I mentioned, they're ignorant of the crisis that's upon them. They're in the now in the, the literally in the shadow of the cross, and, and they don't know it. They just know that they've had a rough night. That he's turned their world upside down. He has told them he's preparing them. He's sending them. He's doing all this stuff, and they're overwhelmed. How much information have we looked at in that upper room discourse? in those five chapters, 13 through 17, how much information is that? I mean, we've looked at it and kind of picked it apart over months. They had five hours. And it totally went the opposite direction of everything that they understood, of everything that they thought was coming. And so now, worn out, they get to the garden, emotionally wrung out, and they sit down to pray, or they stand to pray, whatever it was, and and, and they, and they fall asleep, so they must have been sitting. So They're sleeping, and interesting, he says watch and pray. Now, you could watch and not pray, or you could pray and not watch. But if you're sleeping, you can't do either. And so he finds them in that condition. Now, blending the Gospels again, we're going to skip to Matthew chapter 26. And we'll wrap up this morning there. Well, actually, we'll get back to the Gospel of John. Matthew 26, verse 40. Then he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? They didn't understand the responsibility that he was putting on them. And I would submit to you that he was not putting this on them just to watch for the soldiers and to pray for him. He was getting them accustomed to praying for themselves. Remember, he's here with James and John the ones that as i shared earlier kind of had this haughtiness or this arrogance of yeah well you know we'd like to sit one on your left and one on your right and jesus said no 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 you don't want that and and, and then peter here being as arrogant these are the same three guys that were with him on the mount of transfiguration they're with moses and elijah and and Peter, I love that passage. Peter says, can we just build tents and stay here? And I'm paraphrasing it, but that was his heart. He was like, this is way beyond cool. This is awesome. Here's Moses, there's Elijah, there's Jesus. He's glowing. And, and these are the same three guys. They were his inner circle. But he also knew that he was going to use them greatly going forward from here. And, and I think it's kind of interesting, too, because in the three there are four gospel accounts in the New Testament. Three are called synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we've been looking at this morning, and then because they share a great deal of the information is shared between them. The fourth is unique, the Gospel of John, where we've been studying. And part of the reason why I'm going into all four accounts is because the synoptics have rich information in this last few minutes in the garden. In the Gospel of John, And I was laughing to myself and thinking, I I am not going to try to guess the motives of somebody's heart, but it's kind of interesting that John left all of this out because he was one of the ones that fell asleep. And I don't know. But But I think it's interesting that as we blend these, that we get a full account of what's going on. And all of this, as I mentioned, it's between verse 1 and verse 2, all of this. And so I just felt led to to go into this so that we could understand fully what's happening here in this garden this night. As we continue on here, he says, You couldn't watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. How many times have I cited that when I've blown it? This is what Spurgeon had to say. He said their master might find an excuse for their neglect, but oh, how they would blame themselves afterwards for missing that last opportunity of watching with their wrestling lord. Think about it. They would look back on this night and think, Wow, I wish I'd have stayed awake. I wish I'd have been there. I wish I'd and, and again, I'm not trying to read too much into it. I just think that's an interesting angle that they would go forward and then look back. They have learned much. As the Holy Spirit would reveal to them and open their hearts to the things that Jesus had said and done as they went forward. uh, I marvel. I marvel at the spiritual maturity of John. I I see him here, probably a teenage, late teenage kid, fisherman, and, and yet. As he writes this gospel, as he writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, as he writes the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, you look at the spiritual maturity and, and the depth of character in him. Marvelous. Marvelous. Look at Peter, you know, warming his hands on the enemy's fire and you know, open mouth and then engage brain was his pattern, and, and you look at his life before the Holy Spirit came upon him and empowered him and began to give him understanding and all of the things he went through, and then you go and read First and Second Peter, and it blows me away. Again, I, I just the wisdom, the godly wisdom, and and the character that came out. This, this is the genesis of that in those men's lives. Peter, just like us, failed in later temptation because he failed to watch and pray. The spiritual battle is often won or lost before it comes, before the crisis comes. It's part of why he wants us to be people of prayer, so that when it comes, we're ready. Uh, When he talks about um, lest you enter into temptation. That's Enter into temptation is actually one Greek word. It's parasmon, And it means to succumb to temptation's evil power. So he's saying, watch and pray, Pete, lest you succumb. And Peter would succumb when he bailed on the Lord later in the night. Verse 42. And again, a second time, he went away and he prayed, saying, oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, Your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. I wonder, they did this three times. Is there something unseen going on here? It's just a question that came to me as a study. Is there something unseen? Uh, to do the, the powers of darkness in this scene, in this situation where these guys just cannot keep it together? I don't know. Uh, but it's something that's it's worth pondering. Verse 44, So he left them and went away again, and he prayed the third time, saying the same words. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Says this, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions, as the heathens do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. We have here Jesus praying the same words three times. So what's the deal? In Matthew chapter seven, he says, "Don't use vain repetitions." There are some that say, "You know, it's not all that spiritual to to repeat my prayers to the Lord." I say hogwash. I think he wants to hear our prayers. I think he wants to hear us repeat ourselves in prayer. As long as it's not vain. As, as long as it's not like, you know, and I've been to a liturgical church, and, I, and I'm not here to just put down all liturgical churches, but often what a liturgy produces is that we stand up, we recite the Lord's Prayer, have no idea what it meant, and we sit down and then we stand up and we pray uh, a canned prayer and we have no idea what we just prayed and we sit back down. And the, You know you know what I'm saying? That's a vain repetition, that's something that it's not impacting my heart. Believe me, Jesus' heart was impacted here. and He's praying the same thing over and over again to the Father because he's deeply, deeply distressed. To the point of death, it says here. And so it's not about that. Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you remember, he, he said he got a, a messenger of Satan to buffet his flesh that he would not exalt himself beyond measure. And how many times did say he prayed? He prayed three times that the Lord would remove it. And the Lord said, no, I'm not removing it. And he said, okay, I'm good. Again, paraphrasing, but repetition in prayer. I'll tell you what, there are times where uh, I, I was in a prison one time where there was about to be a riot, and, and the guy that was going to start it already had two murders on him, and there were no guards. <laughs> and my prayer life was, Lord, 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 oh, Lord, oh, Lord, Lord. And, I mean, that's and literally what I was terrified. I wasn't being a great man of God at that point. I was in definitely not repetition, vain repetitions, but it was repetitious because I just knew that I didn't like what was going on. And uh, a pastor that I was with, a little tiny guy, not little, but he's a lot shorter than me. So I guess that's little. Um, I'm not looking at anybody. <laughs> But he stood up, and and with the power of the Holy Spirit, said, all right, you guys, sit down and shut up. And they went, okay. And they did, all of these hardened criminals, I mean, with tats and the whole deal. And I was like, blown away. It's just, but repetition in prayer is not a bad thing. So there are times where we are really troubled. And we go to the Lord more than once, don't we? As long as it's not a vain thing, as long as I'm not doing it because it's like, If I say it enough times and he's like, you know, has to jump through my hoops and all of that, then you're good. Verse 45, And then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, when he says this, he's not saying it. He sees the guys coming with the torches and the clubs and spears and all that. I mean, it was a cohort, a Roman cohort. With, it's what they said that he had. That's a tenth of a legion. It's like 600 guys. You know, we'll get into it next week. But he sees, I mean, it's not easy to miss these guys coming across the ravine and coming towards the garden. I mean, there would have been a long line of people coming to arrest him. Judas at the front. And so he says, look, they're coming. Now, he's not saying, look, they're coming so he can run away. He's going to walk towards them in the face of all that because he knows that his hour has come. He knows it's time to take the cup. Verse 2. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. See, we got two verses in this morning in the Gospel of John. But I think it's significant as we sort of take this apart that we, that we get a good view of the distress that Jesus was under as he began now uh, what I, the, the Catholic Church calls the Passion, uh, as he began to enter in to this last segment of his earthly life where he would be under such great stress because he knew what was before him and he knew he had to do it in order to accomplish redemption for us. As a man, enduring all things that men do, it definitely wasn't fun. It definitely wasn't a neutral experience for him. It was difficult beyond measure. And there's a mystery in that that I don't even want to try to explore because I'm not Jesus. But I can only imagine... That the difficulty there is far beyond anything I will ever face. Far beyond anything you will face. And yet, part of what we know about him is that he identifies with us. He identifies with the things that we suffer. He identifies with the things that we go through. He identifies with the stress. Far beyond our ability to identify with him, he identifies with us. And I bank on that. I bank on the fact that he loves me with a love that I don't understand. And I won't understand this side of heaven because his love is so deep. It's, it's, it's an infinite love. All I can do is hope to reflect that love to others as I go through this life and bring glory to him through it and by it. Let's pray. Father, such a brief look at, at this time in the Garden of Gethsemane, this place of crushing For Jesus, our hero. And yet, Lord, in this time as we look, we see that he truly is doing this for us. That we see that his blood is poured out for us. His life is poured out for us. If there was ever anyone in all of human history who was completely others-centered, no self-centeredness in him at all, it's him. And we praise you that you sent your son to accomplish the work that we could in no way accomplish. Our righteousness is as filthy rags before you, but now sharing his righteousness, we can go forward boldly and in perfect faith, believing that he's done the work for us. Thank you, Lord. Uh, I pray, Father, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, that has never come to that saving faith that today would be the day, that they would turn from the old life and pray a simple prayer of, Father, I know the life I've lived doesn't, it doesn't measure up, and yet I know that you offer me a new life. And believing that, by faith, I now embrace that new life, turning from the old life and embrace you. And if that's something you're doing in your heart of hearts, pray that prayer, I encourage you. And then tell someone about it. Jesus called people publicly. I'm not going to embarrass anybody or make you come down here or anything like that. But it's it's the most important transaction that you could make. So, Father, for each of us, wherever we're at, we pray that you would just minister your truth and your love to us. That you'd give us a good afternoon. We pray that you would just bless our fellowship now together. In Jesus' name, amen.